0: Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Stafiri. I'm the senior pastor here at Beach Point. And I, I want to admit up front, I, I have control issues, uh, uh, maybe like some of you. I, now, one of the things that's made my life a little easier is I have this digital assistant. Her name is Alexa. Do any of you guys have an Amazon Echo? Do uh, you guys know what this is? So this is... This is, it's kind of, this is kind of a different version. This is like the big speaker my, my father-in-law gave it to me, and I thought, this is a complete waste of time uh, as a gift. Uh, but it was very interesting because Alexa is a voice-operated assistant who will, who will do things I ask her to do. There are certain things that I can ask, so such as I can ask, uh, Alexa, what is the weather going to be like in Huntington Beach today? Alexa. What's the weather like today? Right
1: now in Fountain Vap, it's 68 degrees with cloudy skies. Today's forecast has intermittent clouds with a high of 73 degrees and a low of 61 degrees.
0: Or I can ask important things, life-changing things like, Alexa, who's the best team in the National League right now? (laughs) Alexa, you're embarrassing me. Who's the best team in the National League right now? Alexa, what place are the Dodgers in?
1: The Dodgers are in first place in the NL West at 55 and
0: 28. Okay, and what place are the Angels in? Alexa, what place... Never mind, okay. So... the now you can order groceries, you can set reminders, you can set alarms you can do all kinds of things but one thing that is very clear about Alexa or Siri or whoever, or your Google home is that I am in charge and that Alexa is my assistant now I think when it comes to uh, our lives, one of the things that we see is we like to be in control we like to be in charge now just by show of hands, how many of you like control you like to be in charge just by a show of hands so just look around now you realize that the tension this is already created because if I'm in control and you're in control and you're in control like we're already we're starting to feel the tension in our different things that we want from each other Uh, this is one of the challenges one person said it this way uh, they said like that we live in a me-centric world or as someone said welcome to the universe we see this whole world revolving around ourselves this is our challenge and isn't it interesting, too, the way that the world is customizing everything around us? Doesn't it creep you out a little bit when you're online and when you're scrolling down your Facebook page or whatever it is, and you start to see all the things that you're kind of interested in starting to show up on the sides, just like all the intelligence that is kind of telling you, hey, you know that, that those sneakers you were looking at uh, four days ago? We want to remind you that they're still available and you still want them. They're on sale now. And you start going, this is kind of like, who's, who's listening? Who's listening through this thing right now? You start getting really worried about this. We realize we, the whole world is about me. In 2006, in fact, Time Magazine voted you Person of the Year. You were the Person of the Year. We realized there was a shift that had taken place in our culture that we had all kind of turned in on ourselves. We love us. We love ourselves. And James suggests something. He says this, this is not a recent problem. This is a problem that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the church, if not way before. But we see that the very first Christians had the same problem. They wanted control. They wanted to be able to call their own shots. And so James challenge them in this way and see this is where we're at we are in a series where we're thinking about what does the genuine Christian life looks like and James is challenging this kind of thinking of the of what it is to plan what it is to what is a genuine Christian life look like when it comes to planning so here's our big idea today that when it comes to planning out your life let God lead and James is going to challenge us that our tendency is to treat God like Alexa. He's our assistant. And we invite him into our plans to accentuate the different things that we want or the ways that he could make our plans better because we like control, we, we love control, we need control over our lives. And so James challenges us with this, that there's a difference between being the center of the universe and being centered in the universe And so I want to challenge you to turn to James chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 13 to 17. Now, this this walk through this letter of James, this has allowed us to uh, start thinking through. Today is going to be the last day we're going to look at James. We're going to actually come back to James in the summer. You can see we're already under construction for under construction, which is our, our theme, our vacation Bible school theme that begins next week. Uh, don't miss next week. It's going to be, you're going to get a little preview of what's going to happen. And we're going to enter into a whole summer where we talk about the way that God is building our lives. And we'll come back to James 5 in the summer. But we get a chance today to think about this this unique way in which God is speaking to us about control and about planning. Now, here's the thing to remember. Remember that these, this letter is written to Christians who've been dispersed because of persecution. So they were all in Jerusalem. They, there was a persecution. They dispersed around the region. And so now as they enter into new places geographically, there's a chance for them to also think through uh, new opportunities. Opportunities for commerce and business. Opportunities to make money in and, and to provide a living. There's, they're, they're all good things in and of themselves. But James wants to talk not about those things in and of themselves. He wants to talk about the process we go through to arrive at the decisions we make uh, to, to come to those places. And so let's look at James 4, 13 to 17. We'll see a couple observations that he makes uh, for us to think about planning. So we read this. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Okay, so we've said the big idea is when it comes to planning out your life, let God leave. So here's the first challenge we see in these first couple verses. Make God the center of your plans. Make God the center of your plans. Now, notice it's normal, unfortunately, for us to plan and to execute kind of daily things without really thinking about God in it. And so one of the things that you see that James mentions, these are... They're, they're things we do. They're routine things. And that's part of the point is that as they went through their kind of routine of their life, they were making plans about the routine of their life. And the one thing you notice absent in those plans is God. God being a part of those plans. James is not condemning business. He's not condemning uh, uh, making money. But we see as he's, he's speaking about the everyday normal affairs of life. This is his point, that there's a way we go about these things without... Uh, uh, think about God, our dreams, our visions, our, our business, our plans. And verses 13 and 14, he says, you, you plan all these things, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And what James is condemning isn't planning. What James is condemning is kind of the smugness of attitude, the, 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 the arrogance, the pride that says somehow that I'm just going to do this. I'm going to drive forward. I have control over the future. And we know that we don't. So let's let's pause for a second. Let me ask you a question. When you are thinking through educational plans, career plans, relationship plans, marriage plans, future plans, what, what role does God play in that? What consideration does God get in your planning? Now this focus on everyday activities is important because if God is sovereign, if, if he has control over all things, then, then he should have leadership in all things. And sometimes our attitude is, well, when it's big, or when it's scary, or when I don't know what to do, then I bring God in as a consultant to my plans. But the routine of life, I've kind of got it. I've got a plan. I'm going to drive at that plan. I'm going to do my plan. And this is the very thing that James is challenging us on. That in all things, let's consider this. Now, you ever thought about why you might leave God out of your planning? Could it be that he might say no or yes, depending on which you don't want to hear, or that he might affect your profit margin or that he might uh, have a different plan, a different person in mind? See, being honest about these things are helpful for us to see that, yeah, I, I do like control, and I do want to plan, and I do want to drive, and I really do want God just to be kind of my assistant. I don't like to admit that, but that's probably the, the truth this morning. Now, Jesus did something so interesting. He spoke into our lives about the routine, and he said this. He goes, look, think about the routine of your life. You worry all the time about money, what you'll eat, what you'll wear." Your hearts get very restless about these things. And then he gave. He didn't just point out the problem. He gave a solution. And the solution was this. Here's the solution. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things. And these things that he was speaking of in the context of that chapter were routine things. It was the daily stuff. It was the daily survival things of our life. And all these things will be added as well. Notice the shift that he puts. That God is not the trailer behind your giant, you know, semi-truck of life. But that God is the engine. He is driving forward. We seek first his kingdom. And all these other things seem to fall, he says, will fall into place. So let me ask you, what things right now? There are specific areas in your life right now that you tend to go it alone. Admit that to yourself. Maybe write those things down. Here's some areas where I would say right now I've been struggling with kind of doing my own thing, or I'm just not really asking God. I'm not listening. I'm afraid to hear what He has to say. I'm afraid He'll slow me down. I'm afraid He'll change my direction. I want this. I need this. I I want to go this direction. Where are you going it alone? So we make God the center of our plans. But notice that James is going to challenge us even further. He says, uh, the second thing is to trust the one who has all control. Trust the one that has the con- control. So we don't want to be the center of the universe. We don't want to plan like we control the future. Because James says, you don't have control even over tomorrow. In fact, your life is like a mist. And he shows kind of not just how temporary but and how fleeting our life is. But really, the lack of strength and power, wisdom, the, the, the Us, in and of ourselves, really, we don't have the substance it takes. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't have any certainty. Now, God has given us a very interesting ability. We have the ability to recall the past. And we can learn from the past. But notice what God has not given us the ability to do. We cannot foretell the future. We can understand the present. We can remember the past. But we cannot tell the future. But James is suggesting there is one who has control over tomorrow. It's not you, but there is one who does have control over tomorrow. And what he's challenging us is this, is that there's, again, is this the attitude of all this. That we'll go and do this, we'll carry out this kind of business, we'll make this kind of money. And he says all this stuff, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. Now remember this is what James has been he's been condemning this this whole chapter. So remember last week Kathy brought up this this idea. We see a few verses earlier notice a few verses earlier in verse 6 it says that God opposes the proud. He lifts up the humble, but he opposes the proud. Now we think, okay, I want to be humble so that God can be the wind in my sail kind of thing. I want, to, I want to submit that way. But let's take a moment to think about that second part. God opposes the proud. I would not want to be in an auction being opposed by Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or some rich guy who was lighting money on fire, right? I, that's, I don't want to oppose this guy in an auction, I do not want to be playing a church football game and opposing J.J. Watt, right? I do not want, like if that guy's on, on the opposite church team, then I'm converting to whatever their church is or religion is right there, okay? I don't want anything to do with him. I do not want to oppose Manny in a rap battle, okay? Now, first of all, if I'm in a rap battle, someone just quietly come up and ask me, Bill, what in the world are you doing up here? And just pull me off the side, But I don't want to oppose uh, Emmanuel Tarsus in a rap battle. Now, if you want to watch a rap battle, show up on July uh, 16th. I think it is Manny's having a benefit concert here uh, for a mission trip. But I don't want to think about this. Scripture says that when I'm arrogant and proud and when I'm kind of insisting I'm in charge, God opposes me. The God of the universe fights against me. And I don't want that. James says, I'm full of pride. God is opposing me. So what decisions have you made lately in which you failed to include God's perspective? Again, think of this as a moment of confession, not a moment of of failure and and condemning yourself. Use this as a moment to say, Lord, okay, if part of walking with you is changing directions into directions that you would have that would be life-giving, show me, show me this morning. Bring, bring this, these things to light. Now, uh, when it comes to decision-making for us, most people, I, I think, turn to a tried-and-true kind of solution-making uh, option, and it is this. It is it is proven to be the most powerful way to make a decision, right? It is the yellow uh, memo pad. So you take a yellow—you guys know how to do this, right? You take a yellow memo pad, right, and you just simply do this. You put a line down the middle, and you put a plus on one side and a minus on one side, and if you're married, you get together, and you say, for example, okay, my boss offered me a promotion. Plus, more money, more vacation, promotion. I don't have to work with my old boss. Uh, and you start kind of listing all the pros. Cons, uh, It's going to be more time. It's going to be more travel. Uh, I'm going to be tired. I won't be able to coach uh, Jimmy's Little League team. And you start making this list. Now, what is the list attempting to do? It's making a scale, right? And what we want is the scale to lean one way or another so that we can figure out what the decision should be. Now, be honest. If you want the scale to go a certain direction, you cheat, don't you? So you say, well, we'll make more money, vacation. Oh, and we'll have more spending money. And we can have, uh, our, our rent won't feel as big. And you're just saying the same thing 10 different ways because you want it to fall this way or whichever way. This is the way we do it. But what we realize is, again, there's a, there's a, there can be great independence in this process that we have to be very, very careful of. Now, one of the things I would simply say is this, that there's, God has given us this great blessing. And the blessing is the church. I don't mean the, the, the building. I mean the people of God. In fact, when you read the New Testament, one of the things that you see is that, that the, the instructions are always plural. It speaks to us, this one another life that we are to live together and so one of the things that happens in, in, when we come to these places, let me encourage you to do this. The next time you pull out the yellow pad, the next time you get to this place, bring this to godly people and invite them into this with you. To pray and to discern and to seek together God's will with you. That's one of the reasons why I love our life group. uh, Is to be able to be open about some of the things that I'm facing. And to listen with them and to pray with them and to hear this with them. Now one of the things I think, uh, there's a beautiful picture of this happening in the church. This is how the church leaders operated right from the beginning. So in Acts 15 there was a moment where the church hit this tremendous crisis moment uh, where the church could have kind of blown up. There's a lot of new people coming to faith, but they weren't from the Jewish background. Then, so there was all these questions about how Jewish they needed to become first and then Christians and all this kind of debate. But there's this wonderful thing. They came together, they talked, they prayed, they listened, and they came to this conclusion. But listen to this conclusion. Acts 15, 28 it says this, that when they shared their conclusion, they said it this way it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us notice this that there's this way in which they could say together we listen to the spirit of god and this is what we believe we have heard god say in the, in the in the uh in the church, this discipline is called the, the discipline of guidance, of corporate guidance. And there's a great way that you and your life group or you with a Stephen minister or others could do this together with other people where you don't have to go through this season alone. There's a way of listening. And the prayer and the conversation brings clarity and alignment and a unified spirit that we're hearing God's will. Humble people seek the will of God. See, humble people believe, they bow down before a sovereign God. They they understand that there is a God at the center of the universe, that they are not that person. And they submit themselves fully to his leadership. Prideful people, they walk around, they drive through, they snap their fingers, they want things done their way all the time. Humble people say, Lord, take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my life, Lord. It's yours. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You know, many times, and I don't know if this is why you do this, many times you'll see people in the service, they'll raise their hands in worship. And, and for many people, it is a it's a moment of surrender. It's I mean, this is a this is a sign, it's a universal sign of surrender. It's a universal sign that says. I can't do it, but you can. And so I surrender my will to yours. Or you might even see them turn their hands up to say, what you want, I want to receive. And even in that posture, there's humility that says, there's someone who knows about tomorrow, who can control tomorrow much better than I can. And humble people seek him. Trust the one who has all control. But here's the last thing I want you to see, is that you have to embrace His plan for your life. Embrace His plan for your life. The passage says that the people planned without God because they thought they were masters of their fate. So they presumed about tomorrow because they thought nothing could happen outside their control. They thought that they had that that control or they procrastinated thinking, ah, if I don't get to it, I'll get to it when I, I get to it. But we see even in verse 17, this challenge. No, you know it's right, then do it. J.B. Phillips wrote a paraphrase of scripture and on verse 16 he says it this way. He says, as it is you get a certain pride in yourself and planning your future with such confidence. And that sort of pride is wrong. When You and I say we believe in God. But then we plan and we act as if there is no God. In some ways it's like we're practical atheists. We, we, we believe here, but practically speaking, we're, we act as if there is no God. And the psalmist says it is the fool who says there is no God. And When we plan our lives if, if, as if God is uninterested, as if he's uninvolved, then we are like that fool living as if there is no God who can lead us. Now, I, I, the, the passage challenges this. He says, James says, look, you, you, you got to embrace, what, what is God's will for you? Embrace that. Seek, wonder, God, what do you want? If it's your will, then I want it, and I'll go after this thing. But if it's not, I'm okay with that. And this is the challenge that James has given us. Now, I think one of the great examples of this is the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, he says to one church, uh, the uh, Corinthian church, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, no, notice how he says this. He says, I will come to you very soon, If the Lord is willing. Now, those last words there are not just something you attach to everything you say. Kind of just in case. um, Just to be safe if the Lord wills. No, there's something different. There's an embracing in Paul's heart that I want to come see you. But he can say as clearly as he can in that moment. I'm just not sure if this is what God has. But if he has it, know for certain I'm coming. So he's clear about his desire but he's also surrendered to the Lord's will. Now, I think one of the reasons that Paul could say this with such confidence is earlier in his ministry, he had experienced this. On his second ministry uh, missionary journey, he wanted to go into Asia Minor. He wanted to visit churches that he had helped establish on his first journey. And it says that in Acts 16 that the Spirit resisted him. As much as he tried to go in and to see them, we don't know exactly know how it happened. All they could say is the little team is that, that the spirit just resisted him. He wouldn 't let him go. And then he had a vision, and the vision was a, of a, a man from Macedonia saying, "Come to Macedonia." And so they, they, they switched their direction, and instead of going to Asia Minor, they went to Macedonia, and we, we read the story of, and it seems like, oh, yes, we see it, of course. He goes, he goes down by the water. He meets Lydia and her household. They come to faith. He's walking in the streets. There's a slave girl. She's uh, tormented by this demon. He prays over her. She's released. Yes, it makes a ton of sense. This is why God brought him. People get upset with him. And the scriptures tell us this in Acts 16, that the crowd joined in the attacks against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, stop there for a second and ask yourself this question. Would you not be thinking to yourself, Really? You redirected my plans for this? Beaten with rods, flogged, thrown in a dirty dungeon, in stocks and chains? This, this, is the, this, is, this is the better plan than the plan I had? I, it makes no sense. But that's not how Paul saw it at all. Verse 25, it says this, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, worshiping God, and all the prisoners were listening to him. When you're sitting in chains in a wet dark, dirty dungeon after having been flogged? Will you pray and sing songs of worship because your your heart embraces that God's plan is good? You may not see it all, but you're okay with that. See, Paul, whether it was uh, a place of victory or a place of prison, Paul could embrace that God was good, that God, this was God's plan. And if you read the rest of the story, you'll find that God was still working even in the midst of the difficulty the story continues to erupt in, in some great moments for God. But it did come with great cost to him. When it comes to embracing his plan, I, I think number one, you have to be willing to embrace. You have to be, there has to be a willingness to do God's will, whatever it is. It begins with a willingness that I'm gonna do God's will. When I find what your will is, I'm going to do it. And we start there. It's an attitude of the heart. and We've seen this week after week after week in James. It all begins in the heart. Do you want God's best? Do you want his will above your own? And we find this, this will by seeking and praying. Remember what we saw in James chapter 1? That when you find yourself lacking wisdom, what are you to do? Ask God. And what did we find out about God is that he is generous, that he is good. He doesn't find fault when you ask. In fact, it says that he lays out a table before you and he finds the right thing and he gives you generously the wisdom that you are looking for. And so remember what James has already taught them. Look, don't be afraid to to seek and find. But what I hope you'll realize is this, that with your attitude of heart and the seeking of his will, That whatever it is that he shows you, it should be in harmony with the scriptures. It should be in harmony with the will of God. We should see the things that we should see that it makes sense as as best as possible. And this is why we surround ourselves with good, godly people. He's going to lead us to things that are consistent with his character, with his glory. Jesus always, always, always leads to life. When we do these things, our confidence grows, our faith grows. And no matter what, we'll have this sense that what God is leading me to is good. It is right. And this is verse 17. If you know what's right, do it. Okay. To not do the thing that you know God's leading you towards, uh, this is the challenge. Now, I would tell you this. For, for me, for us here at Beach Point, this has been a really, really challenging year. On the outside, um, I don't know if you can see it as much as you can if you felt it from the inside. From the outside, we see all these great people that are coming, these lives that are being changed, this, this really, really good work. But part of this really, really good thing that's happening has meant that the church has changed in its dynamics. We have two campuses and uh, multiple staff, all these kinds of dynamics that are much more challenging than we've ever had in our 100-year history. And so one of the things that happened was we began over a year ago to begin to think about, Lord, you, something has to change. Uh, our staff felt completely fried, burned out. Like they realized, I can't, we can't keep up doing it the way we're doing it. Something is off. And we knew that something needed to change. And we began to pray about how something needed to change. And, and one of the things that was so, uh, what I love so much about this process, the, probably the only thing I loved about this process, much of it was just hard, hard, hard stuff, was the attitude, good godly men and women who embraced God's will for their life who worn out after self-preservation, who said, I don't know where I fit in this in the future, but I trust God. And there'd be times where I would try to protect them and they would say, Bill, don't do that. I trust God. We trust God. My family trusts God. Don't worry about me. God's got us. And to see that kind of character built my faith, that God was in control, that he was working in them just as he was trying to work in me, and try to see how all this go through, and so some of the interesting things that happened, even today. Today's uh, July second. Yesterday, July first, as Brian shared, we kind of begin a new uh, fiscal year, and our leadership. At, if you were here last week, we prayed uh, and, and uh, uh, affirmed all these things, but we we changed the structure of family ministries. We've never had a, really a family ministry department, but we changed the structure and moved our youth and, fam, our youth and students together. We moved Amy, who's uh, now 13 years on staff, been a brilliant staff member. She's, gonna, she's leading this family ministries department. Uh, we took, I knew I needed someone and people kept saying, Bill, you need someone next to you that can get into the weeds so you can stay up top and lead us forward. And so one of the things that we began to look at was uh, having an executive uh, leader. And Matt Lewis, who has just built so many leaders in our church and has built so many great systems, and I've worked next to Matt for 11 years. It's like, Matt, you can do, handle these things that I don't know how to get myself into. And so Matt began to, to walk with me in this. But if you pull Matt out of worship, that creates a void. What are you going to do about worship? And so eight months ago, we start thinking, what, what's going to happen if we take Matt, Matt feeling called out Who's going to feel called in? How do we do this? And the unique way in which we were walking this path wondering God was working through someone else and working in her life and began and was working a path in her life. And I want you to hear a little bit that this is very real. As it's real time in in your life, it's real time in our life as well. And so one of the neat things is today uh, marks the beginning of Joy Vetterlein as our pastor of worship arts and communication. So Joy, tell us a little bit. Come up here. And tell us a little bit about your journey of trusting God's plans and getting to this point.
1: Well, hi, everyone. First of all, I'm really happy to be here with you all and starting this uh, new role and journey with you. Um, If I could describe the last three years of uh, my life with my husband and our two kids, it's been, um, I guess I would call it a walk in the fog or a drive in the fog. Do you know when you're driving in fog at night? And you kind of have to go slow enough that when you, because you can't see where the road is going until you're literally right on it. And right when you see the turn, you have to start turning your wheel. It feels like that's what we've been doing for the last three years. Um, I had been working at a church in worship and felt called to that. I felt passionate about the ministry, but as we were having our first child, it became apparent it was time for me to move on. And I had never known anything uh, outside of that role as uh career wise. And so it was scary to leave that and to, to wonder um, what God was going to do. It was, was I done with worship ministry, something that I really loved. And uh, over the next couple of years, uh, God provided other opportunities. And I would start one and think, oh, this is the next thing. Like, I'm going to be a freelance writer, that's what—that's the work coming my way, and I thought that was going to be my next thing, and then that work dried up, and we're like, wait, God, but that was the thing, what do we do now? And um, all along the course of this, we, we keep having this question, we really have no business living in California. Our families, we don't have any grandparents for our kids, uh, no aunts uncles, cousins, our families are spread out all over the country. And so we kept asking God, God, why why do you still have us here? Can't we leave? Can't we? Like, if we're going to be far away from our families, we've been watching Fixer Upper, can we just go to Waco and buy a house <laughs> there for like $100,000? Um, but he, he just kept reassuring us that he had us here for a reason, and that he was doing something, and that we just needed to wait, and that he had some work to do on us in the waiting. Uh, so, so One thing after another, got another job, and then they closed their California offices. But in the course of that uh, is when I was introduced to Bill and introduced to Beach Point. And uh, our first Sunday here, um, gosh, we we left almost in tears because it was like the Holy Spirit put something on our hearts saying, uh, there's something for you here. I'm not going to tell you what yet, but pay attention because there's something for you here. And so, over the last two years, we've just been coming and we've been praying and trying to figure out. And a year ago, I got to join the staff part time and still just wondering, though, what do I do with this desire I have for worship and for um, to, to be in ministry? And when Bill, uh, eight months ago, uh, invited me in and shared what God was doing in Beach Point, um, it was just this crazy moment of sitting there and and God just, he doesn't always do this, but in this moment, God just allowed me to see the pieces click into place of what he'd been doing in my life, in my heart, and what he'd been doing in the church here, and to realize how much I needed that time of waiting to be prepared uh, to be called to this position. So um, through the course of just then praying, you know, God, really, really, is this, is this really at this time? <laughs> um, God just really gave me a heart and a passion to join all of you just to grow as worshipers together. Uh, The worship that happens in this room is meaningful to the rest of our lives, and the world needs to to receive the fruit of what God's doing in our hearts in this room. So um, I'm right in the middle of this with you, and I'm excited to see what God's doing and what he's up to, and uh, just can't wait to see what's next.
0: Well, all of us are are living this real time, so let me just ask you one final question: What decisions are on the horizon that you need to set before God and seek his will? Uh, you, you know this there 's something there are things that you're you 're facing they're big decisions or exciting maybe they 're just really exciting or maybe they 're really scary but what what decisions do you need to set before God and our response this morning. Uh, really leads us into our time of communion. The ushers are going to come to you in just a moment. But our response this morning really wants—we really want to be this: not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And as the ushers come, as the tray comes to you, I, I, I want just to invite you that uh, to grab. There's two cups. Grab, grab down. Grab them both out. A uh, little twist will pull them apart. But here's here's the thing. In this moment. We, we get taken back to a, a very significant moment that Jesus wanted us to celebrate. On the last night of his life, Jesus was sharing a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he, he said, take and eat. This bread represents my body, which is being broken for you. Eat this, remember me. And he took a cup and did the same thing. And he talked about how this cup represented his blood, which would be shed for the forgiveness of, of our sins. Drink it. Remember me. Now they didn't quite know what was about to happen. In fact, it hadn't happened. Think about this, that after that meal, uh, they went to a garden to pray. And Jesus took three of them and he took them a little further and then he asked them if they would even pray with him. And it was such an intense moment because all that Jesus, everything that had been moving, Jesus had been moving towards this moment, but now here he came to this moment and it was just, he was right there on the, on the cusp of it. But remember, even for Jesus, that he could pray and could say to God, is there any other way? Is there any other way? But then we read these words. It says this in Matthew 26, going a little further, he fell to his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he would pray that again one more time. "Not, Not what I will, father, but what you will. And if we're going to be genuine in faith, if we're going to be the genuine people, it, it, it seems so right that James, the brother of Jesus, would say, look, we got to be people who say, Lord, what, what do you want? Father, what, what's your will? Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's what we want. We, we don't want to just drive through our plans. We want to say, not my will, but yours be done. So as the, as the bread and the cup come, here's my invitation to you. Uh, come to that place. Come to that place where you can say, I really do. I don't want it to be about my will, but yours be done. And when your heart is there, take as much time as you need for your heart to get there. When your heart is there, eat and remember him. Drink and remember him. Remember what he did for you. And let that be a reminder that he is willing to lay out his life for you. You don't have to be afraid about tomorrow. He loves you. He's for you. And this is a reminder of that. And so let's pray. And so Heavenly Father, we pray, not our will, but yours be done. As we meet you in this time, show us the ways that that's not the case in our life, that we might confess and repent and turn in a a better way. Uh, But Lord, we pray that this time of being with you, of communing with you, would just give us the confidence once again that you are for us, that you are with us and that we do not have to be afraid about tomorrow. And so uh, build our worship in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're ready, eat and drink.